Hey everyone, Paul here. This is our final episode of the calendar year as we head into the Christmas holiday season. And it's a unique episode because I'm actually on the other end of the interview for a change. Recently, a pastor in rural Iowa named Stephen White, who's also a listener of this podcast and a member of our Deep Talks Patreon community, reached out to me to see if I'd be open to having a recorded conversation with him as part of his master's thesis, where he is studying the intersection of culture and theology and church organization. And we just had a really a delightful conversation. It was really fun to be able to share more of my own personal story and my own theological history, as well as even explain what the title of my podcast means, meaning making. It's not a term many people are familiar with. And I don't know if I've ever explained it, which I probably should have at some point. But along with that, we spent quite a bit of time discussing some of the connections between the mind software content, the four dimensions of culture, cultural values, some of the ideas even in the earlier, much earlier Battle of the Gods material that we've covered, uh, the Christ and Culture series, the Hyper Object episode, so many points of connection. It was really enjoyable. Stephen brought some really great insights himself. So I, th- I thought this would be great to share and I hope you enjoy. I was really interested in interviewing you for a while when I started listening to your podcast and thought, you know, you're, you're talking about some things, uh, not directly, but at least indirectly concerning values and culture uh, that reminded me a lot of, of Newbigin. Uh, mm-hmm. in some of the ways that you're thinking. And I thought it would be kind of fun to address this topic with you uh, and then obviously be able to uh, insert you into some footnotes and quote you a few times. So to make my sure. writing experience a little easier. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, if you don't mind, could you give us just a little, I say us, I, for whoever reads my transcript, would you uh, give me a little bit of just your bio, who you are, your background, et cetera? Yeah, well, I'll I'll try not to give you the whole uh, the whole personal history, but the things that would probably be most relevant for the purposes of your project. Um, so I uh, I am a um, I guess you could say a second generation evangelical, in that my parents became uh, evangelical Christians, so they wouldn't have called it that uh, in the seventies. So my dad grew up in. Uh, I would say barely nominal Catholic, you know, in that they may have gone to mass at Easter once in a while, but you know, largely not like anti-faith or religion or anything like that. But, um, you know, probably by and large part, mainly like a secular, mostly secular home. My mom grew up in a very devout Catholic Roman Catholic background. And it was in the 70s that for both of them in divergent ways, they had their born again experience, which is, you know, that's a language that's still reflective of that, you know, that time period. I don't know, even among evangelicals today, how many people are using terms like born again, per se. But, uh, you know, that I, I mentioned that because I grew up then as a kid of the 80s and 90s in what was really like an experimental time for parents. Yep. Right. You know, so my folks, obviously when they were teenagers and kind of like lived through the, the massive cultural shift 
that happened in the U.S. You know, circa the '60s into the early '70s, with you know the Cultural Revolution, the Sexual Revolution, and so you know uh, the script for first-generation evangelical parents who were really concerned about the shift in culture, you know, the shift in culture that they experienced from their childhood now to raising kids, was warranted. Um, but that meant, you know, maybe the development of uh, a new sort of uniquely what we now commonly again just refer to as evangelical subculture. So, mm. you know, I, I grew up in a, in a small Christian school for elementary all the way through uh, high school. It was the was same. It, was it an ACE school? It was an ACSI school, Association okay. of Christian Schools International. We had um, a Becca curriculum, which is from Pensacola, Florida, uh, part of, I think, Pensacola Christian University, one of the most fundamentalist, and I think we were even proud in using that term, fundamentalist schools. Um, So that was my experience for school. It was also part of a church. So... uh, this it was a church school dynamic in a lot of ways i miss a lot of these things that you know we really had a community of mm. people like every sunday i was seeing the same people that i was seeing in school by and large part there's certainly kids that went to the school that didn't go to the church but then at youth group i was seeing them in sunday school and so you know, there's a lot of positive things about it um but there certainly are some downsides to that cultural framing that we took up in the 80s and 90s, which was largely, a, um, you know, to, to use the language of, of Niebuhr, and Niebuhr, H.R. Niebuhr has these typologies, you know, you've, if you've listened to those episodes, you're familiar with his work, uh, he's got these typologies, and we were very much Christ against culture, mm. right? So the culture out there is secular, it's increasingly secular, and so our response is to sort of create our own culture. Christ only works really in the church. Um, so, you know, I always tell this story as one example. Sorry, I'm probably going longer than I'd already. No, that's okay. But um, one story I always tell, which is kind of funny, is like in my Christian school one day, um, someone had carved uh, the band, the, you know, the band Rage Against the Machine in one of the desks. And all of 7th through 12th grade was brought to the chapel, which was also our gym. <laughs> and um, the, the the pastor, so not even the principal, the pastor of the church came in and uh, reamed the entire school, not about destruction of property, but about listening to secular music. Wow. <laughs> you know um that this was a satanic band so it had you know very interesting framing of that so uh, that was very much part of it also a unique part of it was that my particular church school community was very charismatic uh theologically in fact we were on the word of faith prosperity gospel end of that that spectrum so i grew up reading kenneth copeland daily devotionals as part of my chores. Um, and again, when I share this stuff, like my parents always like listen to my podcast still and stuff. I'm, I'm not, I'm not angry or bitter about these things. I just use them as a frame of reference. Cause there was also a lot of really great things that I feel like my generation misses out on, that they really uh, worked hard to cultivate like that, that real sense of community. 
But anyway, so that was that was kind of the the theological frame I was in. Kenneth Copeland, Ken Hagen. I went to multiple Benny Hinn crusades as a kid, um, which probably I can't I, I can't ever imagine bringing my own kids <laughs> to something like that. And if I did, what they would think. I don't know. It would, it would be so weird, so weird to them. Uh, but it, that was, that was like my normal, my normal framing. Um, and so that, that was kind of the culture, the theological, very culture war saturated, you know, all the stuff about, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, mm. you play that game, all of a sudden you're, you're going to be a devil worshiper. Um, uh, Democrats are evil, very Republican culture. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the Christian nation uh, meta story for telling U.S. history as well. Um, so I, my reconstructive journey started, you know, probably tail end of high school, into college, um, and then certainly much more significant phase of that reconstruction happened in my early adult years. I was still, um, I'd been, I'd been in vocational ministry since I was essentially 19 years old, which is just was a stupid idea for someone to put me in that position at 19. Um, but the pros of that was just a lot of like real life church experience. I'd also been teaching in Christian schools when I got done with um, undergrad and so um, I was afforded this great opportunity when in my full-time teaching role to constantly be studying the Bible as part of my job, which was really uh, an incredible benefit. And then I've always, uh, up until recently, or I should say for most of my adult life, had been bivocational, where I was either teaching full-time and on staff at a church or a parachurch ministry for another 20 hours a week, or sometimes those roles would switch. So I was constantly afforded the opportunity to be in the scriptures, like all the time. Um, I still was in my charismatic stream, and I spent a lot of time traveling the country with a, a ministry that was setting up 24-7 worship and prayer rooms. I uh, traveled with a guy named Sean Foyt, yep. who became you know, fairly well-known in the news this year for the Let Us Worship protest rallies and things like that. So I was deep. I, I probably got deeper into charismatic culture in my early twenties than even what I was as a kid. It just wasn't the word of faith stuff. So, um, so I'm in my early twenties and I'm starting to experience, I think the more uh, these just wild times of worship, we're talking like two plus hour sessions of just only singing and a lot of spontaneous singing and praying for sick people and, and all of these things, which I, I still think are great. Um, it stirred up in me this appetite to know God and all of the available means and channels that God would want to reveal himself in, uh, which just led me like I, I didn't grow up in a culture that valued um, academic theology mm. or philosophy or anything like that. That was cemeteries or seme uh, seminaries or cemeteries as well. Yep. So my pastor told me. Yeah. Right. So, but in me, I just, this appetite to know God and all the available means uh, it was just stirred in me through these practices of worship. So it started there. And then as I started digging into church history and mm -hmm. theology and getting even outside of my charismatic stream and 
you know, reading other perspectives and actually, you know, at the school that I was teaching at, um, you know, I was probably the only charismatic surrounded by a bunch of Calvinists. And so I'm having these really, you know, started off as really competitive, angsty dialogues. And slowly as our relationships developed more and more over the years, it became something where it was like, hey, we're actually of mutual benefit to each other. So I'm getting, digging into church history and theology. History was my undergrad, so I liked history anyways. And I started seeing these, these patterns in our own church behavior um, and practices in the charismatic stream that didn't match entirely what was hap- what were beliefs and practices mm-hmm. of the church historically. Um, and yeah, so I think that that's the short maybe a medium, not short, (laughs) a medium length way of telling my story up until that point. Um, So in my mid, early to mid twenties, I started going through a real broadening my perspective, broadening, um, moving out of the culture war mindset, moving out of um, even theologically using theology as a weapon you know, to win your side of an argument. Um, by the grace of God, I really feel like that sort of thing got broken off of me. Um, and I started to see the value of mo- of all the different streams within, you know, the rich, historic, broad, big tent Christian family. Um, yeah, so uh, at some point there, I decided, hey, you know, I'm doing all this teaching all the time. I, I think I'm you know, my, my, my appetites and affections in ministry are shifting away from these long, spontaneous worship sessions, realizing I'm always hitting a ceiling, a cultural ceiling in those settings where uh, early on I was writing songs and stuff. And I, I would find like, you know, back in 2012, I, I put out an album that was all like all about the Eucharist, but it was for charismatics. Interesting. And it, it totally flopped, you know, like it just didn't land at all. You know, I was, that was what I was hoping to do is just to be honest, like a itinerant worship leader, travel around the country, do stuff like that. And, and I started to realize that like the, the, the culture of theology in a church sets the kind of the ceilings and the limitations of mm. what's acceptable in worship. So my desire started to change. Um, and I thought, you know what? Um, I feel like maybe it's God's moving in my life and with these experiences to maybe start helping people go on at least a similar journey in some regard to what I've gone on to that I think led me to more spiritual health in my life. So I went back, went to uh, seminary and um, got a really unique, uh, there's not a lot of seminaries that offer this. It's an academic track, um, seminary degree, a degree, a master's in Christian thought, which I just to tell most people is just philosophical theology and fully intended to um, go straight from there into uh, getting a PhD. And in that process of filling out, you know, PhD applications had some really good and sobering discussions with professors and people in academia who already at the time, and this was maybe four or five years ago, six years ago, I'm losing track of time in 2020. They were, um, they were saying, Hey, you know what, here's the, here's the reality of the job landscape 
and what's happening in academia. And this is already pre-COVID, um, and it it's not promising. So uh, already with a young family of three kids, decided I don't want to move around the country hunting for academic jobs, but I still have this desire. And somebody brought up to me and said, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. Humanities and sadly, they're a dying art in the universities. They're losing their funding. That includes theology and philosophy, but that doesn't mean people don't have questions about this stuff. Hmm. The medium that they're going to explore the questions will shift. So I thought about that quite a bit and I said, you know what, I think instead of going on and getting my PhD, I feel like I've learned quite a bit already in the course of my life and in my academic experiences that maybe I could serve as a bridge in some way between I think most lay people and even a lot of pastors um, experience of, of theology and the scriptures and a lot of these really fun and interesting discussions I was finding in academia that weren't like culture war. They weren't like, Hey, you know, if you disagree with me, you're a heretic. And I was like, man, why can't that thing that I so loved and experienced in seminary be a more normative experience for people in, in churches or even just people that are like uh, just, just truth seekers um, in general. So that's when I decided um, about almost two and a half years ago, I decided to launch the podcast. I'd been meeting with a lot of young people in their twenties going through questions they had, they were calling it deep talks. So I just said, well, I'll just keep that title. That's kind of something that students had always called what we were doing in my classroom. So it's kind of a term, affectionate term for me and say, Hey, you know what, let's just, maybe uh, it's getting a little more difficult to keep meeting with all these different people um, with my schedule and and being a pastor in a church context. Um, so maybe I'll try this podcast format. So that's kind of what launched the, the, that deep talks podcast. And um, yeah. And so I do that by vocation. I'm a pastor of worship and the arts. So I still music and music ministry is still vital. Yeah. Are you at, is it first evangelical church? There first, first, yeah, Ev first evangelical free church in South Minneapolis. You know, I think, uh, our sign just says first free church because where we're situated in our cultural context. Um, it's not like we are ashamed of saying that we hold to certain things that evangelicals have held to like the inspiration of scripture, like the, the urgency of the message that's worth sharing. But in our cultural context in South Minneapolis, it's, uh, it's not a, it's not, wouldn't be a term of endearment. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Interesting. Interesting. So um, you, you made mention of the podcast. And one of the things that caught my eye when I first started checking out the podcast was kind of the tagline where it says exploring theology and meaning making. Um, what do you mean by, by meaning making? That, that, that phrase just kind of, I don't know, it caught me. I really enjoy it, but I'm not for sure what you mean by it. Yeah, so meaning making was a term, um, and I can't remember if it was d directly addressed in graduate studies in seminary, or if in, you know, just in the course of, uh, you know, it was around that time, it was around that time in my life, 
Um, and I discovered the term and I found it to be really helpful. And again, I can't remember if this is specifically in a class or just in research for a paper or something like that. Uh, this term, meaning-making, I think was originally developed by a behavioral scientist, psychologist uh, named Robert Keegan. He actually was a professor at the University of Minnesota for a while, and um, he used it to describe this overarching human experience, right? So fundamental to the human experience, one of the things that probably separates us from other species on the planet is this innate drive to make sense of our experiences of life and to find meaning. Mm. Um, so meaning making was an overarching term that he used to describe everything from theology, philosophy, psychology, science, because behind all of that is, and I agreed with his thesis, um, so that's why I co-opted the term. I agreed with his thesis that behind of all of our endeavors, whether we're studying math or science or history or philosophy or even going to the movies, we're always searching for meaning mm. in all of those experiences. And I also found that, especially like in a particular discipline of theology that I was studying and focused on, which there was all this overlap between, well, what's theology and what's philosophy? You know, what's cultural theology from the difference between cultural theology and practical theology and systematic theology. And the truth is that all of these things are so intertwined together that uh, I included theology in the title because I don't think people, most people would know what meaning making is. So I figured if I don't have theology in there, people aren't going to know what the heck this is about. It's already a strange title. So I wanted to include theology because the primary focus for me was trying to figure out how theology, so our essential views and beliefs and questions we have about God, how those intersect with all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. Mm. So uh, again, Robert Keegan, I believe, is the first guy that to, to coin the phrase. Um, he, you know, he's not a he doesn't um, he's not a professing Christian or anything like that, but was a brilliant behavioral scientist. Did a lot in the. Um, the, the study of adult development and psychological development. Um, I've referenced him before too. This is probably a, a year, maybe a year to year and a half ago, a podcast episode on deconstruction. And actually um, there's a place in, in Keegan has this model of adult development, which is really, really interesting. And there's a spot in there where uh, I think a lot of people's deconstruction, faith deconstruction experience fits within a healthy model of adult psychological development. So yeah, Keegan's a really, really interesting guy. And I found that term, I think to be the most helpful, I guess, if people, if people come to understand what it means. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. Your uh, background is so similar to mine. Um, I was raised in a, a small Pentecostal church in rural Oklahoma. I say small, I mean, it, for a rural church in Oklahoma, we ran about 200. So it was a good size for a rural church. Um, but same thing, I went to a Christian school. Uh, my school was an ACE school, uh, Blackwell Christian Academy is what it was called. And um, Is it in the we, South? Yeah. We were the, or Blackwell is actually Northern Oklahoma. It's right on the border of Kansas okay. off of I-35. Yeah, that's still South to yeah. guy that lived in Michigan and Minnesota yes. his entire life. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, same experience. Um, a lot of great, wonderful things came from it as far as friendships, long lasting community. And uh, I hold no ill feelings towards my upbringing. Um, the big challenge for me was my parents ended up getting divorced and uh, couldn't afford the school. So I ended up going to public school and uh, was kind of living in two different spheres at once. And that was that that um, that culture of the 80s and 90s within the church. And then uh, the culture of the world of the 80s and 90s, you know, and it was, oh, yeah. it was very interesting. Uh, the I think everybody experience. was living. Yes. I mean, and let, it was, especially when, by the time you got to become a teenager, yep. right? And you're getting your high school years, it was like, I only a, only a few people that I ever know in that world that just still stayed completely sheltered. And it was like, you kind of, and you developed this like dualism within you, yes. right? Yes. Which was like, you know, my parents didn't know all the secular CDs I secretly had and, uh, you know, eventually probably burned in three different times. Right. right. Like these altar call meetings where it was like, burn your secular CDs. But yeah, I totally know that experience. Yeah. I still remember being with some friends that my parents didn't want me to be around. And yeah. so school was out. I would go hang out with them and they started playing um, a, a cassette from a group I hadn't heard of at the time uh, called KISS. And Ooh. all I knew about KISS was, as my pastor said, that the, you know, it basically meant uh, Knights in Satan's service or something That's like right. that. <laughs> and so I just remember being like terrified as I was listening to it. Like, you know, am I going to become demon possessed? Oh my gosh. I listen I, to this. That's um, so funny. I know that experience well. Yeah. And then I still specifically remember 1988 because uh, we had this, guy come in that had wrote a book called 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Yeah. Um, and just the, the fear that was part of that culture of constantly being afraid. Yes. Um, and then, you know, having the breakout, uh, while I was at undergrad, I went to a, uh, independent Pentecostal college in San Antonio. Hmm. And uh, a couple of our professors were having us read outside of the tradition, um, and started, you know, reading Spurgeon, and uh, found, uh, ended up finding Piper uh, and some others. And there was kind of just this, this sense of some freedom. Uh, yeah. And then later on in life, after my first pastorate, um, I remember getting a hold of some Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, and just really soaking him in. And that really began to, to change some of my charismatic ideals um, and things like that. And then finally finding Eastern Orthodox. Mm, and yeah. just, that was a big part of my journey too. Yeah. Falling in love with um, liturgy and iconography and that type of stuff. It, for some reason, I don't know if it was because of our bare white walls and this oh, yeah. intention of never committing idolatry, but it, it, it almost it almost created within me a longing or actually it did. It created within me a, a deep longing for an artistic expression of the faith. Yeah. So it really kind of did the opposite of what I think their intentions were meant to do. Right. Um, but still nonetheless. So it's it, very interesting to see uh, how children of the eighties and nineties 
have so, very similar experiences. I mean, how much did that concept of theosis when you first discovered it in Eastern Orthodoxy map on to like the charismatic Pentecostal thing that you were really searching for, right? Right. That was a game changer for me. Yeah, it blew me away. It, you know, and then finding it in, 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 you know, the book of Peter, Second Peter, and just being like, oh my gosh, this yeah, is I always ever told me this, right? Right. Why isn't right. this a thing with charismatics? It was like, right. oh my gosh, this would be so awesome. It would fit within, yeah. you know, the structure of the theology. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So um, I'm curious. Let me, let me read to you, if I can, just a couple um, definitions of values. Yeah. Um, and then just dive into this. So this is from uh, Aubrey Malfurst. Uh, in his advanced strategic planning book. Um, and th this is kind of the, the most shallow one. It says, uh, the values are the constant, passionate, biblical core beliefs that go deep and truly empower and guide the ministry. Um, Milton, and I'm not for sure I pronounce his last name. I think it's Rockich. Uh, he wrote, values are core conceptions of the desirable within every individual in society. They serve as standards or criteria to guide not only action, but also judgment, choice, attitude, evaluation, argument, exhortation, rationalization, and one might add attribution of causality. Mm. And then um, let's see if I want to do, yeah, I'll do uh, Talcott Parsons. A lot of people dispute him now, but I still think he has a pretty interesting definition. He writes, the values which come to be um, constitutive of the structure of a societal system are then the conceptions of the desirable type of society held by the members of the society of reference and applied to the particular society of which they are members. The, the same applies to other types of social systems. A value pattern then defines a direction of choice and a consequent commitment to action. So in all of these, um, they seem to point out that, that value, what we would define as a value, is something deeply held in a belief within ourselves that then produce an action and a direction. Um, Rokic uh, has uh, basically, sorry about this, my headphones got tangled up. Rokic created um, 16 values that he had discovered worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he divided them in eight each. Uh, he has instrumental and then terminal values. And so terminal values are, are what Malfers would call aspirational values. Hmm. They are the values that we, we desire to get to. But then inst instrumental values would be the same as actualized values. These are the values we believe will take us to the terminal values. Yeah. So, I mean, one could actually say... Um, you know, Genesis 3 is the, is the problem. Revelation 21, 22 is the terminal value. This mm -hmm. is where we're going. You could mm -hmm. even qualify it as just, you know, a vision. Yeah. Uh, this is where we're going. And then one could say Matthew 5, 6, and 7 would then be the instrumental values mm -hmm. that take us to the terminal value. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense? Totally. Okay. Awesome. So, um, you recently did this uh, two-episode podcast, um, which Mind Software blew me away. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, I'm, could you quickly explain um, 
what you learned in the process, the study that it took to produce that, and then what you were trying to accomplish? Yeah, well, when um, obviously this has been a strange year um, <laughs> in a lot of ways uh, beyond the pandemic itself, like the actual virus, the diversity of responses to it has been obviously intriguing to all of us. Like, uh, I, I knew the depths of the culture war, but I, I at the beginning of this, I did not envision uh, when, you know, back in, let's say February, when it first seemed like, hey, this, this is actually gonna hit us. And then March comes around and then stuff's getting really serious. I just, I did not envision the depths of the culture war bifurcating mm. people on a pandemic, you know, on a virus and an illness in such peculiar ways. Then obviously we've got the George Floyd incident, which happened uh, it's, we're on the same street that George Floyd was killed. Our churches, we are just blocks down the street from it. Mm. Um, so we're seeing all the, there's the peaceful protests. There's all the really awful stuff, um, the looting and the rioting. And then of course there's the national election and the Trump phenomenon and all these other things going on. And so I've been, I was like really just trying to wrap my head around it because I I know like what you're talking about here, even though I haven't read the work of those particular authors that you've mentioned, um, that, that it's, it's not so much that people have ideas as much as ideas have people, mm. right? And values in particular, we're all, we're all, values are the fundamental thing aside from perhaps these, um, universal uh, human instincts that are part of our, you know, I don't know how comfortable you are or other, you know, the people that would be reading with this, working within this framework, but let's say even within the, the framework of um, uh, the, me the me mechanisms of evolution yeah. that we have these survival instincts, we have these desires for, um, uh, to, to procreate, right? Those are some of our base drives. So like some biological that, values that are just kind yeah. of programmed in. Yes, right. Um, but then we also have these um, cultural values. We have values beyond just the universal human nature. We have the cultural values, and that's kind of like the layer of um, programming that gives shape, right, to the human human nature and gives it a unique expression in the cultural value. And then we also have our own personal genetics, right? So I've been, I was just wrestling quite a bit with um, what are the things that are really driving these differences? What are the values that people are aimed at, or in some sense are, are, are aiming them towards these particular behaviors? And I remembered um, this work that we had studied in, in seminary by, uh, from here uh, gosh, I, I said his name wrong. I think 10, 10 different ways in the podcast. Hofstede. So it's um, G-E-E-R-T-H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E. -E -E. So he's a Dutch social psychologist. And um, 
I was reviewing some of that work and going, man, this is something I actually, I need to give more attention to. And for, for Hofstede, there were, um, Hofstede did cross-cultural studies, right? He worked for IBM along with being a professor. And in the early days of IBM, you know, this is before Watson was born. <laughs> IBM was still a leader in data and computing, right? So this gave him access and ability to do some uh, pretty revolutionary cross-cultural studies and analyses about cultural values. And originally he came up with four dimensions of um, culture, which help us better understand uh, I, I don't know if he used the language of values uh, as much as he might have said norms, cultural norms. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, you know, he used the word, the language of values. So he came up initially with these four dimensions that help us uh, understand um, on a national societal level the values of a culture. So the first four, the, there were two more, one more that was added later, another one after that. So if you read Hofstede's stuff now, and I think his son carried on his work too, that you'll, you'll find um, six dimensions of culture, right? I just focused on the, the first four. I don't have a problem with the other two, but it would have made the podcast 10 episodes long. <laughs> so the, those four dimensions, right, are the... Um, power distance uh, and you have a small power distance cultural value or a large power distance cultural value so power distance is a small power distance uh, cultural value would like to minimize the gap between people at the top of hierarchies in social settings and business places and churches and the people that are at the bottom all right and even the acknowledgement of the, that there is a top and bottom is, is growing in um, contempt in our culture but yep. there is you know we have managers we have ceos we have bosses we have people that are in elevate, elevated positions of authority small power distance cultures they want to shorten that gap between the two that's a value to them large power distance cultures actually see that the gap is valuable and they actually see it as something that's worth preserving or even maybe even widening the gap and for them it's like this makes for a more functional society. So the power distance, um, the second one was uh, individualism versus collectivism, right? In America, most individualistic country, Hofstede also came up with this uh, index of, of ranking um, different national societal cultures. And the United States is the number one most individualistic country. I think Australia is number two, which makes a lot of sense. You, if you transport yourself from the United States and go move in Australia, there'll be some cultural variation, but on the individualism side, you know, it's right. not, not going to be a massive difference versus if you went from the United States to Japan, much more collectivist, China, much more collectivist. Um, so, you know, individualism, the priority is the individual is the basic unit of human measurement versus collectivism the group is and you get your identity as being part of a group that was the second one third one was the um uh, masculine and feminine another very controversial one in american culture today that you can see across our species certain uh, shared masculine features and certain shared feminine features and over time cultures develop a propensity towards certain masculine out 
outlooks and behaviors and values and certain cult other cultures develop more feminine ones. So I believe the United States is in the top 15 of most masculine uh, oriented cultures. I think, I, you know what, I, I might be wrong about that. So don't quote me on that one. I'd have to look back at the chart. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Denmark and Sweden, for example, they have, are much more feminine-oriented society. So especially when I remembered that one and reviewed it, I was like, oh, I mean, there you have MAGA, the Make America Great movement, explained in one of the four cultural dimensions right away. You can right. go through the list of masculine values, right, uh, of a masculine society masculine oriented society and you go does this apply to donald trump <laughs> and you go through the list and it's like yes and, I, and i'm not saying that uh, you know I, i'm not saying that as a negative or positive thing it's just i think the reality of the situation is that trump represented a um deepening of our masculine culture that a lot of people felt like we were losing and had lost in the Obama years and in progressive culture, which has tended to be a little bit more on the feminine oriented mm -hmm. value system. So that framing was really helpful. And the last one, the fourth dimension that I explored, even though there's two more is uh, uncertainty avoidance. Uncertainty avoidance, you can be strong uncertainty avoidance culture, which means you're going to come up with a system that um, minimizes the unforeseen because you primarily perceive the future and the unknown to be a threat, right? So you're trying to minimize that versus a um, weak uncertainty avoidance culture. A weak uncertainty avoidance culture uh, is more like Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. They don't view the future and the unknown as much as a threat. And obviously there's strengths and weaknesses to both kinds of cultures. Right. So those are the four dynamics we're exploring and framing that and helping you understand um, that while Hofstede was focused on the national societal level, those values also happen in subcultures and microcultures. Now we've got a macro culture that is part of our larger social paradigm, but it's made up of smaller subcultures and microcultures network together and a lot of what we've seen i think culturally just trying to help people understand the cultural moment not demonize necessarily people that are you vote for trump or you vote for biden but to understand where their values are hmm. that was you know that was the goal and i think this year was a good object lesson in helping people see those differences you know there we need sometimes um, it, there's a lot of benefits to an individualistic oriented society. Individualistic oriented societies have the highest GDP per capita. Right. Go through the, that list. Right. And there's a lot of good that having a high GDP does for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. America has a lot of faults, but we bless the world in a lot of ways too. And a lot of that comes from that value, that individualistic value. But there's also hyper-individualism where we, um, th there's some real dangers there, especially if you're a Christian, right? And you're in a Christian community, a community that we practice laying down our rights for each other, for the body of Christ, for the sake of others. But the hyper-individualism thing, it doesn't map on very well, right? So 
a lot of, in, in summary, the last point I'll make about that is that what we've seen is that in our culture, a lot of the culture wars just, you know, you have as subcultures grow in their influence and they carry that cultural value with them, it comes into collision with the macro cultural right. value. And then, you know, I think as much as I wasn't wild about the Star Wars sequel trilogy, I didn't hate it, but I wasn't wild about it. There's this just great line that, that captures this dynamic, right? In episode seven, Snoke is uh, talking to Kylo Ren and General Hux, and he says, the darkness rises and the light to meet it, you know, the, mm. that, and that's really true. That's a concept captured, I think, in, in Taoism, which Taoism, I believe, as a philosophy has a lot of valuable insights, is that, you know, once you once you see the macro culture come into collision with subcultures, the macro is going to push back. These different subcultures are going to push against that. Um, darkness rises, the light to meet it. That doesn't. I, we don't need to say that one value is good or bad right away, but that's just to say when you have these tensions, and one maybe starts to get a monopoly, and the people in these subcultures feel like they're not heard there's going to be a cultural collision. And, and that's what's happening in America. The internet has um, only expounded that because mm. you think about our experience in church growing up, it's like, I don't know about you, but I didn't know any different than my own no. church experience because there wasn't the internet. Right. And so I didn't know values that were different than my own church or community values but you get online and now social media, now you're all of a sudden interacting with a bunch of different subcultures and people that come from different microcultures and you're seeing their different perspectives and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, there are people out there that see the world differently from me and our universal human nature, I think part of the sinful side of our human mm. nature is we go into fight or flight mode. Right. We feel threatened. And so um, social media heightens it. There's also great opportunity for tremendous things to happen to social media. Like we wouldn't have connected without it. Right. But I think that's, that gives, I think hopefully people some uh, way of understanding what is going on. And um, hopefully again, as I think somebody left this comment on our Patreon forum discussion on these episodes when they said, Hey, you know, one thing I'm, I'm appreciative is, is of listening to this before going into the holidays with a bunch of family that see things differently and hopefully giving me the grace to see the value that they're pursuing. Even if I, I could maybe even disagree with it, hopefully I can understand the value and understand why it is that someone is pursuing that value. Yeah, no, absolutely. I had a, a it's talking about the masculine feminine, um, Young and then uh, more so now Peterson talk about the archetypes right, and right. so forth and how, you know, the masculine feminine archetype, it's not necessarily talking about, you know, a male and a female because as human beings, a, a male may share some of the feminine archetypes, whereas a male, you know, a female may share some of the masculine archetypes as well. We had a, a family in our church during uh, this election season, and I'm a um, I'm a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book kind of yeah. preacher. Yeah. Exegetical. It's it's simpler for me to make sure that I don't 
stray off into some far crazy land. Hey, you won't get any pushback from me on that kind of <laughs> expository. Appreciate so um, we've been going through the book of Acts and have been for a little over a year now. And we get into the election season and I'm still going through the book of Acts, which means that I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking pro-life. You know, I'm, I'm, none of that type of stuff is coming up. Um, so this, this husband and wife uh, just stopped showing up. And then one day they text me and asked me uh, if I was pro-life or if I was a liberal. That was the question. Which kind of, I mean, I, I didn't know how to take it because I didn't know why they weren't showing up in the first place. Mm. Um, and they were kind of a new couple, only had been there for like six or seven months. So there wasn't a real relationship built. And it just kind of, you know, shocked me. I didn't really know how to go about it. So I started engaging with them and uh, explaining my point of view and where I'm at. And, uh, you know, just for your sake, I, I am I am pro-life, but... I, I may be pro-life to such an extreme that it actually seems to upset some conservatives within my own grouping. So I'm, 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 yeah. I'm an anti-war guy. I, I really view Revelation 21, 22, no more wars, no more sickness. I, I want to get there. And yeah. so I want to live that as much as I can now so I can get there. And um, so I'm explaining this. And then they said, well, you know, you never preach on sin. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Just the week before when they were there, I had mentioned a sin. And so I said, well, I explained that to them. And they said, well, every time you talk about sin, you talk about the sin of not loving your enemies. And I thought, well, that's a sin, right? And <laughs> she said, what she said was, is um, I am tired of having leaders that want to turn the other cheek. I want somebody that will fight for me. Uh. And immediately it was kind of, it was very interesting because what I told her was, is I said, it seems like you're rejecting the leadership of Jesus for the sake of Donald Trump. And what, what came out of that for me was, is that she perceived a feminine quality Mm -hmm. in the leadership of Jesus. Yeah. He wasn't going to say that because that would ruin her Christian faith. Right, right. right? right. Her, sta- her, her, you know, her view of standing with Jesus. And what she saw in Donald Trump was a masculine leadership, which mm-hmm. is what she longed for. And I think most of this came back for her because of the internet and this, the opening of these views and ideas and values that have always existed in the world. But now they're, they've just come at her mix in that with a bunch of conspiracy theories like QAnon and that weird stuff that's happening. And she was in a fight or flight mode and she felt like she needed a leader that was going to fight the battle. She needed masculinity to fight this battle. So very interesting to see how that correlates with um, that gentleman's research uh, on cultures. And you can, when you understand that, it hopefully helps you not demonize right. that family, right? Because there is a there actually is a place. There's a place for that desire, right? Yeah. I want a defender, especially if you are, <clears throat> you know, what was it last last Sunday or this Sunday's um, 
you know, Advent readings, the Magnificat, Mary's song, right? You know, he, he, he tears down off of thrones, the mighty, right? And he, he lifts up the weak. You want somebody, if you're the weak, to come in and if you feel like there's injustice happening among the mighty to, to tear that thing down. And so there, there is a sense in which like there could be a healthy desire for justice in that family's value system. And, and maybe it's just not finding proper expression. There could sure. be some unhealthy facets to it. Right. There could be a real sense of like tribalism and, and unhealthy right. self-preservation there too. But that's, it's fascinating. And that's the thing, like if you can get beyond the ad hominems, the straw men, all the logical fallacies, <laughs> you can get beyond you're my enemy and we can start getting to the, on the level of values. That's where like really fruitful, loving, productive conversations happen. Right. Right. So now this is going to take me to another episode that you had that was just previous, the, um, the mind software. And that is yeah. where you started talking about hyper objects. Mm. I'm curious, do you do, are we, should we perceive the metacultures as hyper objects? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to be dogmatic about it because you know, to me, the, the hyper object framing for me is primarily about helping people who really struggle with these, I think, really essential pictures in the scripture of spiritual principalities and powers. Right. It's doing the work that Newbegin talks about and all the Van Hooser and, you know, list off any sort of cultural theologian, uh, Niebuhr. It's like the work of the Christian is to always find a way to announce the gospel within the cultural context while not being bound to the cultural context. And so the, the hyper object framing is to me a helpful way of people in our cultural context going like, I don't know what I feel about spirits mm -hmm. that feels like fairies and, you know, are we in Middle Earth here? You know, it feels fantasy. It feels, some people don't feel that way, especially if they come from non-Western culture, but in Western culture. So the idea of, the idea, okay, let's, let's take America. America is a metaculture, mm -hmm. right? And it could also be a hyper object. America could be thought of also in the same way the ancients thought about gods. Is America a god, lowercase g? Or right? like, you know, you, you have this symbolism that is taken yes. from the Old Testament of Babylon. Yeah, yes. And, you know, brought into John's revelation of Jesus. Yeah. He starts yeah. talking about, you know, this, the great... Yeah, that's a, that's a great Babylon. one. That's probably even better. Um, because Babylon in that way functions as a hyper object, right. similar to a principality in power, where it, it does get, it, 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 it's a top-down and it's a bottom-up power. So the power, like um, 
easy one to think of, right, is stock market. You know, that's people that aren't trying to frame this in, in any sort of Christian framework and talk about hyper objects will refer to something like the stock market. The stock market clearly exists, right? You can't point to it in a particular location and say, that's it. That's all of the stock market. The stock market doesn't exist without human activity, but also my individual participation or not participating in the stock market won't make the stock market not exist. So that's where it's actually like getting back to the collective. There's some value in not always framing everything in the individual frame. Right. Uh, you know, other people might prefer like an idea like racism. You know, there's racism that I can participate as an individual, but there's also these overarching systems in American culture that seem like there's this top down thing that's like whoever steps into this deal is, you know, you step into its domain or you get entangled in it and it affects you and changes you and it changes, um, you know, originally, gosh, and I'm drawing a blank on the guy that first uh, proposed it, but he was doing it within the ecological frame and talking about right. climate change. And I don't want to get into that argument, but just if you think about climate change, right, as a hyper object, it is something um, that certainly there is some contribution from humans and animals like cows <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that create the change in culture or in climate, but it's also, again, like it is over the top too in that it affects from the top down. And so you could think of like American macro culture as a hyper object in that way, because yeah. it's certainly, this is how larger societal cultures get built. They are built from the ground up through people participating in from probably even if you want to get to real ancient cultures, right? You might have a family, a family that has a genetic predisposition Let's take, if we just were to use the big five, you know, personality traits, right? Mm -hmm. Let's take a family that um, grew in power and in, in influence, whether it's through might or through business or trade. And they have this, gen all of them share this genetic predisposition towards conscientiousness, orderliness. Well, as that family grows and rises to power, it's going to become a macro culture eventually and what you'd probably find is unless that thing hyper object gets displaced it's going to from the top down put pressure on people to be conscientious and orderly right right does that make sense it does so it almost seems as if a hyper object could be described as from the top down that would be culture yeah and from the bottom up that would be human values mm. yeah and well, yes, yes, because because they're going to be directly influencing one another. Yes, it's uh, they're I'm trying to think of maybe a, another helpful uh, picture. Um, I, obviously, again, like the stock market, right? The stock market fluctuates with our participation, and it doesn't exist without the participation. Um, but like when I go check my, you know, I'm not like a day trader or anything. I, I have some stocks I look at from time to time. I'm really not smart in that world. <laughs> but when I look at my, um, you know, my Robinhood app, 
and I see the changes in the stock market, it also affects my behavior right. from the top down too. So culture is that same way. There are values. And the, so this is where it's helpful. And this is uh, hopefully helpful. The transmission of those values happens in, we'll steal like a James K. Smith phrase, in our cultural liturgies. So when I go to a football game, the value of um, this isn't one of the four cultural dimensions, but let's just say the the the, the value the the value of um, the, the the value of freedom. That's hard. It's a really ambiguous value. <laughs> but when you go to an NFL football game, once upon a time when we could do that. And they do the flyovers with the drones now or the military jets. And you're standing with your hand over your heart. There is a top-down pressure for you to participate in that even just by showing up. And you feel that thing. That's like the hyper object working from the top down on you. Now, the hard thing for you as a single individual is to go and be like, hey, that's not one of my values. So I'm not going to participate in this liturgy in this particular way. It's really, really hard to not participate because then you get shunned by the group. I mean, like, just ask Colin Kaepernick or these guys that have done different postures in their response to, like, you know, during the national anthem and things like that. It's – so the values are still – the values are there and they're here, Hmm. right? and this is the thing that it's, it's, it's actually easier to point to on the psychological and the genetic level and say we can see the individual values of a particular person and the person, you know, you take your Enneagram, your Myers-Briggs and that stuff. But when you start getting into that hyper object domain, it, it feels squishy, but it's also like an undeniable experience. Right, right. That we there's all a, there's have, a, where it's like, a physical presence that comes with it. Yes. I mean, in, in a way that it, um, if, if my wife was to walk into the room right now, I would have a physical response to her presence coming in. Yes. In the same way, when you walk into a, a, an atmosphere, well, that sounded Pentecostal. <laughs> when, you <laughs> walk into, atmosphere. <laughs> when you walk into a space and there is that, that the presence of that hyper object, mm. it has a physical manifestation if you will on your biology on your presence totally and that's why the to speak of the pentecostal thing it's like we used to talk in those circles and charismatic circles especially in my role as like a prophetic worship leader we always you hear talk about shifting the atmosphere right and in a way i laugh at that and in a way i go oh maybe i shouldn't laugh yeah like were we on to something yeah there is something there I don't think it's there necessarily in the way that we were saying that it was there or that our activities from the bottom up, like there is a profundity to it that you step into a room and this used to be like, you know, you'd really say there was an oppressive spirit in the room when people weren't lifting their hands or dancing or shouting or something like that. Right. Right. Um, I, I don't say that anymore. I, there's only, yeah, but you could see the truth behind what happens if a handful of people in the room 
start doing that, lifting their hands, that, that, that cultural norm, which is like, we don't lift our hands, we don't dance, we don't shout, we don't do any of that stuff. You get enough people to do that, it starts to spread, it's pushing up against that, and it breaks. You right. know, you'd hear these things, maybe, you know, depending on your streams, you know, you'd hear all of these terms that weren't in the Bible, and they were totally based on people's experience, like a breaker anointing. Mm. Someone's got the breaker anointing. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, what is the breaker? The breaker right. anointing. Which is basically you're just begging for one person just to start it so the rest yes. of us will get there. Yes, but there is like, there is some truth to it. Like, it, there is, like people were giving ex- language to their experiences. Sometimes it was messy. Sometimes it was inaccurate. Um, sometimes it wasn't doing the thing that they thought it was doing. And yet it was doing something that might have been close to what they thought it was doing. Right. It's so interesting you bring that up. I haven't, yeah, I haven't thought about that dynamic in a while. Yeah, yeah. So which comes first then? Chicken or the egg? Culture uh, yeah. or value? Or is it, is it that human experience is never and has never been in a vacuum and therefore yeah. you can't have one or the other? No, I mean... Or, this is similar to like the Buddhist question of what can, what comes first in the fire, the, the kindling or the spark, Mm. you know, and Buddhists use that question because for in Buddhism behind it all is there's not a first cause. Right. Um, So I'm not making a plug for Buddhism, but it, in some regards, that concept has stuck with me because in this particular case I go, well, it's, it's the kindling and the spark. Right. There's no fire without, without. it. But the fire's there. Right. Um, and then again, like, I love musing on these ontological things, but for me and the metaphysical speculations, but the place I usually come back to when I, when I wrestle with that is about as far as the limits of my brain can take me is to go, what's the existential application? So, you know, that's like the Kierkegaard influence in me which she you know the reading of Kierkegaard played such a huge role in my life the Kierkegaard influence in me is like okay where where does this actually step into the existence of my day-to-day life right and on that level um on that level it's like to me I can acknowledge the the evidence of at a hyper object level values at a macro cultural level values that I feel the pressure to consume, to take into me, to shift my value system. It's happening all around me all the time. I think this, this might not be an exact number, but I think the last statistic I saw in the, and this might've been even pre when we were flipping through our phones all the time, but the normal American consumes upwards of 10,000 advertisements a day. Mm. All of those advertisements are value claims. They're claims that we want your money, which your money in our culture comes as, an, as a result of you giving your time and your values to something else and someone exchanges what they think is a medium of value to you, right? So you get 10, at least 10,000 advertisements, probably more if you're scrolling on your phone a lot, giving you value statements about what is valuable and what you should value. 
So you have that pressure all the time. You also have your own genetic makeup. It's undeniable that our genetic makeup plays a huge role in what we see as valuable. And so it is a bottom-up thing, our personality predispositions. It's a bottom-up thing and it's a top-down thing. Right. And um, so I don't, what I do know at the existential level is, is that I, I have enough agency. I don't know how much, <laughs> but I have enough agency in me to, uh, and I'll put it even maybe in a more Christian way, by the, by the grace of God and the empowerment of the Spirit, I have been given enough grace to say I am not trapped under this principality and power, right. whatever it may be, right? So um, I, I feel like there's hope that this top-down approach doesn't bind me for the rest of my life to have these particular values. So I, I guess to sh shorten that idea, it's to say, I am I. I'm not a slave to the values. I can actually play some role in liberating and being liberated from the values that would lead to death. Mm. And um, I think that's a huge part of, if not the primary thing that we do as pastors, right, right, is right. to give people to bring them into communion with God. To a I don't, this could be blasphemous in a sense. I don't intend it to be, but a, a more powerful hyper object. I'm not saying we create God, but I'm just saying sure. there's a power above it um, that uh, we believe that in the cross and in the resurrection that Jesus conquered and prevailed over the principalities and powers that we see in part and we will see fully one day and i think part of that is this dynamic of you know the powers will be defeated when we get to a threshold in which people have rejected it and have accepted christ's rule and reign right I, right I think so it's to a point it is rejecting these the cultures of the principalities yes and, i mean under the culture of the kingdom yes yes totally and that's kind of like what we that's the announcement of the good news right is serving as a herald not talking people in or selling people something but announcing a particular reality that people can participate in and, and we get to call them into that reality and say hey you know what the empire of death's been defeated and um so in essence we are then actually participating in the creation of the kingdom as a hyper object because every yes. time you every time somebody comes into that that kingdom is expanding and therefore its influence is greater totally exactly i mean I, and i think when we frame it that way i think that's how the biblical authors would have understood it even though yeah. they don't use that language but we have to work really really hard this is the work of cultural theology we have to work really really hard to make that translate and the way you just framed it right there, Stephen, is like, like 
I'm, I'm having all these neurons firing <laughs> in my brain right now, thinking about that and thinking about how many people, if they could, if they had it framed that way to them, right. be like, this way makes way more sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, for me, it, it, it has helped make the concept of principalities. I, I've always underst- not understood. I've always bought into it. You know, I mm. bought into it. I didn't comprehend what that looks like. Is it, is it a big black spirit, you know, physical, right. it's just over locations. So understanding right. it as a hyper object, something that is there, but I participate in creating it at the same time as mm. it participates in creating me, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and the kingdom of God being the exact same. Uh, yeah. But then having as a believer, having the promise of the powers being stripped and torn down uh, yes. brings a ton of hope, a ton totally, of hope. Totally. Yeah. And the thing that separates it from some other religious traditions and the thing that to me keeps it Christian and, and not a self-help thing is that um, all we are doing is responding to the grace that comes before our response, Mm. you know? So there's a grace there. Um, The key for me is in not resisting the spirit. Right. Right. I think not, you know, again, not to get into like Calvinist or Arminian debates or things like that, but I think the essential essence of the Christian message is not that we would have to work from the bottom to climb ourselves up to the top of that principality and power and then tear it down. But it's to say, no, 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 no. Christ has already come and he's descended into our human condition and that universal human nature has been changed. And we experience the change as we step, as he, we respond to, and then he draws us out of those prevailing principalities and powers. So there's immense hope that we have in knowing that it's Christ who's defeated these mm-hmm. foes. Right. And we are participating with him instead of... Um, for him. Yeah, yeah, for him. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I think... Um, and this is a little bit off from where I want to go with this next, but I really think if you take Niber and you stick him with this concept of hyper objects, it'll, it, at least in, in my theological circles, I've had a lot of people reject Niber. Mm. Um, just based off, I don't know, more based off a of principle, I guess, but um, I think if you take Niebuhr and you stick him with the concept of hyper objects, his, in, his understanding of how we engage with culture, if you, if you replace culture with hyper object, his understanding of how we engage with hyper objects um, begins to make sense in that um, from the bottom up, there are going to be aspects of value systems that create this, this hyper object of culture that are human produced and mm. not antichrist. Yes. Therefore, fully redeemable. Totally. But then there are going to be aspects of this hyper object that may not have been human produced, but have always been top down that are antichrist, if you will, yep. and therefore must be rejected. Yes. 
Yes, and Christ is always at work in culture. His spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Right. He's always been at work in every tribe and tongue. A misunderstanding, I think, of the biblical meta narrative is to misunderstand and think that God was only at work in Israel. Mm. No, God was always, you go back to the uh, Noahic covenant, which precedes Abraham's covenant. The Noahic covenant is for everybody. Abraham's covenant is a vocational call to bear witness to God's working in the world. And then we step into the New Testament context, right? As the people of God, Jesus fulfills Jesus as the 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 true um, fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations. We participate in Christ in that vocational call. So we draw people's attention to how Christ is already working in culture too. Right. Um, it is. Uh, that's a, also a very, very different way of framing like what evangelism is. Yes. Um, it's also a very different way of thinking about your neighbor and the religious tradition that they were in. And it's like, you know, when <clears throat> I, I just look at Paul, um, you know, Paul's uh, interaction with the philosophers in Athens, right? And Paul quotes from two different poems or songs, worship songs, we could call them to Zeus, mm. but then reframes it right. in a way of saying the God who is revealed in Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead has been at work in your culture. And like, here are the things to celebrate right. about it. And yet the story is incomplete, mm. you know, um, but everybody like, and that can be really controversial in some regards, you know, especially I think among people in our generation who grew up with a very he- maybe heavy handed turn or burn message. And and now they're more prone to go, Hey, you know, all, you know, all roads lead to salvation. And it's like, well, n- nobody actually believes that. Right. <laughs> everybody has a functional Christ that they're looking at as the standard of what's good and evil, what's right and wrong in the world. They're all, you know, that's so back to the concept of values is, you know, for the Christian, um, there's always a value system. I mean, I've got it. I can't even see it back there. I I have this set up and I remind myself of it. I have a hierarchy of values. And I think I maybe even shared this before, like in our Patreon group, um, where, you know, to me, it is God in Christ that sits atop the hierarchy of my values. And from that, there's a meta story about the world. And from that meta story descends values. And from those values, I have aims, right? That might be um, the author you're referring to who's talking about your, your terminal aims. And then maybe, right. um, I don't know what else, what the other phrase was that he used for the other kinds of Instrumental. Aims. Instrumental, yep, I almost said vehicular, but (laughs) getting you from point A to point B, your aims to me act as those instrumental values. Right. Um, But everybody has something that functions in that position atop the hierarchy of their values. They have a Christ figure. Um, So I, I don't think there's any way around that. And I don't think we need to be ashamed of saying, well, we believe that God looks like this. Right. 
Right. I think that's the purpose of Genesis. It functions as that narrative that places uh, Yahweh at the top of the hierarchy. Exactly. And then through the narrative of that story forms our values to try to reflect Mm -hmm. the top of that hierarchy. Yeah. And it's addressing primarily questions of meaning. Right. For ancient people instead of, you know, some of the, to me, more pointless debates about age of the earth and science issues that it's not, has nothing to do with the questions of meaning the ancient Israelites would have been wrestling with as they're reading this on the, you know, in Babylonian captivity or here, you know, being reminded of this story. It frames for them God's role in the story, distinguishing it from the competing cultural stories. Right. And setting for them um, particular vocational call, which gives them purpose and gives them you as an individual significance. What's my role and the purpose? Here's the coherent pattern. Yep. We have coherence. We have a coherent pattern. Is there a purpose? We have a purpose we've established. Now I'm trying to figure out my significance in that story. And that's, so I, I personally all right there. Yeah. I personally think uh, Jordan Peterson probably has a better framework, exegetical framework in reading uh, Genesis, you know, in, in then do many who try to do more of a, um, well, you know, a seven day creation type of thing. Right. 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 You know, I, yeah. I think, I think he's looking more at what's the psychology of this work. Yeah. And, and I think that's a better reading of it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to run shortly here, but the thing I'd say about that is as much as, I mean, I wish functionally Peterson would like consult more biblical scholars, yes. you know, but I think what you're saying, I, I agree with is that the thrust of his desire when he is reading Genesis is to search for meaning, right? Um, meaning in the story that would, guide in a pastoral sense, even if he wouldn't say pastorally, but it is in a pastoral sense, provide you with a narrative that helps you understand what the story is about, the overarching story of reality, help you find your place in it. I think that thrust in that sense, like Peterson's thrust, even if his tools are not necessarily um, the tools I would recommend, like, and say, well, I, I, I enjoy re- you know, listening to his biblical series sometimes just for like, Hey, it's kind of fun to think about how someone else in the world of psychology and would grapple with these stories, but it wouldn't be necessarily what I'd go and be like, Hey, we're going to go through Genesis and uh, right. Right. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, let me end here with the, with two questions. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to, th- the premise of this thesis for me came out of walking into a church that needed to be revitalized um, in a rural setting, and the culture was toxic. Um, and coming to find out that the values that the people held were very antithetical to the New Testament, specifically uh, Jesus himself, uh, and that those values created this toxic culture that led to its demise, almost a, a rot from the inside out. Um, and so I began to grapple with, you know, how do we revitalize this? And I started off with trying to, you know, take, read every book I could on revitalization and to put into practice what other churches were doing. And it fell flat. Nothing was working. And that's when I realized 
the practices aren't nearly as important as the values that underlie those practices. Mm. Right. So if our values create the practice, create what we do, give us reasoning for doing it, what happens in Minneapolis may not translate into rural Osage, Iowa. Right, right. But, but the values that produced a particular practice could and possibly should translate you know, to create a healthy church culture. So I'm curious on your end, two things. How would, what, how would you describe a healthy church culture? And what values do you think help produce that healthy church culture? Well, first, if I might, I, I might give some nuanced um, yeah. pushback. You can hack the value system by practices. You know, you can. Um, especially people that are coming week in and week out to church who don't share those values. Uh, when you're a leader, you can establish practices that people might not even fully be aware of what those practices are leading them. More to. like a lit, like a liturgy type. Exactly. Of I mean, that's what liturgy is. Liturgy is the bottom up, like um, the bottom up way of hacking our value structure, similar to um, consumption of story narrative um those also have a way of like you know they hack our value system practices do that um you know if i i have never been a morning person right i just never have had that you know in me um but if i i i have become more of one by just getting up in the morning <laughs> like right. the practice of it, I could never exercise in the morning. I was always, I'm going to exercise in the afternoon or evening. And then out of necessity, because I found with kids and stuff, it'd be the only time I could do it. Um, I just did it. And it actually started to change my values. And that's what we hope liturgy does in the, in the practices of worship in our church is each week. So the larger answer to your question, I won't be able to fully flesh out, but I would say this, one of the primary functions of the church is to give people practices that change their value system to, towards the values of the kingdom of God. And you do want to name those, right? Like, as, and to name what, you can name them broadly. Um, and there's some, some ones that I think are probably incontrovertible, you know, um, and then there's others that are like, oh, is this a value of the kingdom of God? Is this just a value of our American culture or rural Iowa culture or urban Minneapolis culture? And you really have to grapple with that. But there's a lot of help <laughs> that we can get from the tradition of the church. And this is one of the things that was really helpful for me coming out of charismatic streams is to find that there were historic practices that produced um, results that were seen as um, predictable, not predictable. I'll, I'll say predictable, even though I'm, I'm thinking it's not the right word, but they were predictable enough that we kept doing the practices. Mm. So um, there's a reason why we sing when we gather together and that, that, that takes different shapes and different contexts, right? 
And that's, that's where the, the, the cultural theology and the sensitivity to what God is doing in your culture is going to take that thing and it's going gonna, it's gonna to shape it in a unique way that fits your culture. We are in a 140-year-old church community. This is an old building. And, um, you know, was, there's a lot of, like, great tunes that come, that the church can sing together that are anthemic, and they come from Hillsong and Bethel and places that maybe have much larger congregations and a different aesthetic. They don't work here. Right. You know, but I don't scratch not singing. Right. Because <laughs> you know? singing has been a verified practice of the church that I know has hacked my own value system. There are so many times, and you know this too, Stephen, if we're honest as pastors, there's Sundays we come in and we don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And there's, and when I start singing by the end of the morning, I suddenly feel differently, you know? So I, yeah. um, there is still a value there like that pushes me to do that. And I'd have to really wrestle with that. But I do think like on a more simplistic level, the practices of the church will shape our values in a particular way. And so the, the job of the church, I will just say the job of worship, the role and function of worship is to um, have communion with God, community with each other in conformity to Christ likeness. Mm. That's the language I use with our teams here. Um, that's our goal. Like those are the three things we're aiming for. Like, you know what? We, we, there is an individual and a communal aspect to us connecting and communing with God to experiencing his beauty, to ruminating on the goodness found in his story, all these other things. There's a, uh, that's the vertical component. There's the horizontal component of how singing and, um, you know, responsive prayers and the recitation of scripture connects us together in community to be Christ-like people. And then there are these practices which shape in us more Christ-like conformity as we leave the place together. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode. Again, special thanks to Pastor Stephen White for the invitation he extended to participate in that dialogue together. It was so enjoyable. Hopefully the sharing of it with you, all of you listening right now, hopefully you found many things in it that could be of some help to your life. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. It's people like Stephen White, who's a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community and supporting this podcast, which ensure that I can continue to do this without advertisement, ad-free to keep having uh, meaningful dialogues with people like Steven and others, to uh, continue doing the lecture series stuff. All of these things are, to me, of just, uh, uh, it's so much, it's so valuable to me to get to interact with all of you in this medium and in this way. And in order to be able to do that, I rely on the support of the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. It's people like Paul R., Ray, Sam and Nicole, Sarah R., Sean C., Stephen M., Taylor S., Tim K., um, Paul S., Michael P., Michael H., Michael Hawk, Luke H., Justin T., Josie, John Michael, Eli, Carolyn, BJ, Jesse. Special thanks to all of you in the Theology 201 group or higher 
extra special thanks to each of you for your support. If you wanted to get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community, I would highly recommend it. <laughs> your support is valuable, but it's also a great opportunity and place to have deeper connections together over um, shared interests in theology and culture and meaning making. There's discussion forums for every episode that people participate in and connect together, not just connecting with me, but connecting together with other like-minded people. That's certainly a bonus. Um, there's also additional Q&A episodes. I try to give charts and graphs and articles and just bonus resources for people that really want to delve deeper into the material covered in these episodes. So if you wanted to become a supporter, there's always those, those different tiers of benefits you can check out over at my Patreon page. You'll see a link in the description below in this podcast. And if I may request one other thing of you, it would be to subscribe and leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. That's the number one place still people are going to discover podcasts. I know many of you use different podcast platforms, whether that's, uh, you know, Google or Overcast or Spotify, whatever the case may be, but still Apple is the number one place people are going to discover new podcasts. So if you leave a review and a rating, it will give someone else a good indication as to whether or not this is the sort of thing that's for them. And it's it's not for everybody. This might be a pretty niche um, a podcast. Admittedly, it is. So uh, if you felt like doing something like that, I would certainly be grateful for it. And uh, that would be of great benefit to other people as well. Um, so thanks for considering doing that. I hope all of you have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday. I'll be back with a brand new episode in the Problem of Evil series straight away in that, uh, that first week of full week of January. And so stay tuned for that. We've got some other great guests lined up in January and in February of 2021. So um, lots, lots of fun things coming. Thanks again for your support and for sharing with others if this has been of some value to your life. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll talk again soon in 2021.